Good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome uh, to the to the uh, London School of Economics and to the Gender Institute Public Lecture Series. Um, I'm delighted to see so many of you here. Um, this is the second of two lectures. Uh, uh, so, for those of you who weren't able to come to the first, a very warm welcome. For those of you who were. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, the speaker in much the same way, so you can switch off for, for that minute. Um, uh, just briefly want to, to give you a sense of the proceedings tonight. Uh, Ranjana Khanna will speak for about 45 minutes, or perhaps a little longer, <laughs> 55 minutes um, uh, tonight. Uh, and but that should still leave us a good half an hour for questions um, at the end. Uh, given this, I will be even briefer uh, than I was going to be in in um, in introducing our speaker. Uh, I just do need to say also that the event will be recorded, and it is very much hoped that there will be a podcast available uh, in the future. Okay. Um, those of you who were here on Monday will know will need no introduction, but for the rest of you, Ranjana Khanna is Margaret Taylor Smith, Director of Women's Studies and Professor in the Department of English, the Programme in Literature and Women's Studies at Duke University. She works on Anglo and Francophone postcolonial theory and literature, psychoanalysis and feminist theory, and uh, I should say on some of the intersections between these. Um, she's published articles on transnational feminism, psychoanalysis, autobiography, postcolonial agency, multiculturalism in an international, transnational context, postcolonial Joyce, area studies, women's studies, and Algerian film. She's the author of Dark Continents, Psychoanalysis and Colonialism, and Algeria Cuts, Women and Representation, 1830 to the Present. Her projects in progress... Um, as those of you who were here on Monday will know more about this now, uh, on the concept of asylum and technologies of unbelonging. And it is to this latter that she will speak tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, um, for coming tonight um, for the second time, if you have come for the second time, um, and, uh, and thanks those of you who have also just come for the first time. Um, uh, this talk is simply called Unbelonging, and as Sadie said, it's, um, it's a talk that, that comes from a project that I'm working on that is, has something to do with technologies of unbelonging, and what that is is slightly unresolved at this point, but um, we'll see. What might it mean to world visual culture, and what might it mean to understand visual culture as worlding, if worlding in Heideggerian terms is the production of art between earth and world? What might it mean also to ask these questions today, rather than in Heidegger's modernist period, characterized as it was by certain ideas of home, homeliness, belonging, with exile as counterpoint? What might it mean also to challenge dramatically the attachment to source, origin, and home that continue to dominate diaspora studies in spite of itself? 
And what if one were to ask how it is that contemporary artists often challenge a sense of nostalgia and belonging in their works, eschewing in many ways the effective binds to community, family, and their understandings of futurity? Notions of the international and the sense of community or senses communis more broadly have shifted from ones dominated by the concept of exile that characterized literary and artistic modernism to asylum. And one cannot think any notion of belonging or community adequately without thinking through the concept of asylum or refuge into the sites of hospitality and potential hostility. Asylum becomes the concept through which one can understand the emergences of different notions of the sensory subject, of community, of the human, and of the limit. Its walls and borders force an understanding not only of what must be expunged, but the difficult negotiations of what might be drawn in for refuge, where refuge itself becomes a welcome threat to both host and guest. Questions of identity and disidentification are brought to the fore, as are the limits of the human, the processes of institutionalization, how sovereignty manifests itself, and what consequences this may have for both a sense of community and a community of the senses. I want to address these questions today through two artists, Mona Hatoum and Isaac Julian, and the question of technology as it emerges in their works. Oh. Not yet. <laughs> I should say, to clarify things a little, what I mean by technologies here. I do to some extent refer to the modern meaning of the term, which stresses the industrial arts, including the literal technical aspects of the camera apparatus and instruments of movement, like ships, cars, bicycles, even legs, feet, and eyes that enable vision, evidence, and transport from one site to another. But also more generally, technology refers to the systematic treatment of anything, a discourse or treatise, for example, on the arts. By highlighting how technology is critical to an understanding of an art object or installation or a travel diary, for example, I stress how each of these texts participates in an idea of text and production itself. In other words, on the one hand, technology refers to the instruments, devices, or apparatus employed as tools in order to achieve something through altering our relation to, the, to a world which does not automatically offer the thing desired. On the other hand, it is to be conceived more anthropologically as something systematic. In this latter understanding, it is more like a network within which such tools enter and alter the world and come for humans to change its meaning and our relation to that meaning. Already we can see that even in my making this simple distinction, something else has occurred. Even as I have listed the examples of technology, ships and bicycles seem relatively devalued compared to cars, which in turn appear now to be normalized and even a somewhat old-fashioned means of transport. The technology of modern times seems increasingly about progressively quicker and more felicitous means to an end, which in turn has shaped the ways in which we come to understand older forms of technology through retrospective projection. This projection usually involves an understanding of a cause, a series of causes, or an occasion for something that demands a response, and then the result of this is an event in which an effect ensues. Temporality is thus introduced into the concept of technology. 
The philosopher Martin Heidegger focuses on the way in which the process of bringing into effect is poetic, a poesis. Something is produced and brought into our presence that was not there before or that was concealed to us before. Heidegger's emphasis then is on the process of revealing and presencing rather than manufacturing alone. It is therefore a form of knowing rather than simply a means to an end. For Heidegger, technology, techne, and knowing, episteme, are linked. He writes, both are, quote, both, are wor are, both words are terms for knowing in the widest sense. They mean to be entirely at home in something, to understand and be expert in it. Such knowing, he writes, provides an opening up. As an opening up, it is a revealing. Whoever builds a house or a ship or forges a sacrificial chalice reveals what it is to be brought forth. The revealing gathers together in advance the aspect or the matter of ship or house with a view to the finished thing envisioned as completed. And from this gathering determines the manner of its construction. Thus what is decisive in techne does not lie at all in making and manipulating nor in the use of means but rather in the revealing it is as revealing that techne is a bringing forth. I will return to the questions brought up by the rather complicated and densely written ideas in Heidegger a little later, but would like to keep in mind quite a simple aspect of it. The idea of poetry as a form of revealing that he suggests characterizes technology, thereby stressing, taking the stress off manufacturing and the idea of a means to an end. The idea of a means to an end will ultimately come under criticism by Heidegger because of the manipulation of the earth that it implies. But I'd also like to stress another idea implicit in the quotation from Heidegger, the idea of being at home in something as a form of truth and as a form of expertise. It suggests that dwelling takes precedence over movement as a way of revealing. And I'll suggest that Monaha Toombs and Isaac Julian's work reveal poetically a different form of truth linked to movement rather than dwelling. If Heidegger placed the technology of ship and house building together in order to reveal something about the essence of technology, it would seem that Isaac Julian's work, for example, reveals a difference between the forms of revealing we may find as a result of the movement of ships on the one hand and homeliness on the other. For Heidegger, dwelling is linked to being in a fundamental etymological sense. He explains that dwelling was linked to building originally and that we attain dwelling by way of building. Clearly then, dwelling is prioritized as a way of being in the world and this dwelling also conjures belonging as not every form of building is a dwelling. Also, Heidegger is less interested in the technological aspects of building and more in the sense of being that belongs to it. Characteristically, he argues through a form of etymological essentialism. I'm only going to read part of this quote, but if you want more of it, it's there. What then does Bauen building mean? The Old English and High German world, world for, word for building, Buen, means to dwell. When we speak of dwelling, we usually think of an activity that man performs alongside many other activities. We work here and dwell there. What then does Ich bin mean? 
The old word Bowen, to which the bin belongs, answers Ich bin, du bist, mean I dwell, you dwell. The way in which you are and I am, the manner in which we humans are on the earth, is Buan, dwelling, shipbuilding and temple building, on the other hand, do in a certain way, make their own works. Building as Bauen comes to be the manner in which Heidegger comes to imagine being with the link to Ich Bin, I Am, being as tightly linked to building as the term neighbor. What interests me, not least because of a sympathy with the understanding of poesis in Heidegger's work and the aesthetics of Hatum's and Julian's, is the manner in which dwelling is not the focus of a poetic form of understanding in their works, in spite of the deep interest in technology and a form of poetry making associated with it. For Julian, the ship of technology does indeed come to mark a profound distinction around being and building. But this difference between the Heideggerian and the Julian and Hatumian understanding of being cannot simply be reduced to a sense of the fluidity of identity and speed of movement that we have come to associate with postmodern aesthetics. It is, I want to suggest, a highly modernist aesthetic and way of being in the world, which in many ways luxuriates in the phantasmatic world of that moment. It's also an aesthetic that references, in Julian's, in Julian's case, and I think also in Hatoum's, a queer modernism that resists being caught up in the concept of belonging, but nonetheless begins to embody the energetic, sometimes utopian sense of possibility that characterized modernism in the sites from which Julian draws his aesthetic, Western European, North American, and Caribbean. It is not unusual, of course, to see modernism as associated with travel. The colonial ventures which superseded the age of colonial explorations were the stuff of modernist texts, and the theory of exile is what in many ways characterized modernism as evidenced in classic works on the topic from Auerbach to Said. And yet, on the, yet even the theme of exile in the early 20th century in, emphasized inhabiting spaces, dwelling and alienation, some nos, sometimes nostalgic from that dwelling. Even Freud's work, The Interpretation of Dreams or the Uncanny, imagines separate psychic localities in a manner that reflects and goes some way in creating that modernist sense of place. In The Interpretation of Dreams, he writes, the famous GTH Fechner makes the conjecture in a discussion as to the nature of dreams that the dream is staged elsewhere than in the waking ideation. No other assumption enables us to comprehend the special peculiarities of the dream life. The idea which is thus put before us is one of psychic locality. We shall wholly ignore the fact that the psychic apparatus concerned is known to us also as an anatomical preparation, and we shall carefully avoid the temptation to determine the psychic locality in any anatomical sense. We shall remain on psychological ground and we shall do no more than accept the invitation to think of the instrument which serves the psychic activities much as we think of a compound microscope, a photographic camera or other apparatus. The psychic locality then corresponds to a place within such an apparatus in which one of the preliminary phases of the image comes into existence. As is well known, there are in the microscope and the telescope such ideal localities or planes in which no tangible portion of the apparatus is located. I think it's superfluous to apologize for the imperfections of this and all similar figures. 
These comparisons are designed only to assist us in our attempt to make intelligible the complication of the psychic performance by dissecting it and referring the individual performances to the individual components of the apparatus. So far as I am aware, no attempt has yet been made to divine the construction of the psychic instrument by means of such dissection. I see no harm in such an attempt. I think we should give free rein to our conjectures, provided we keep our heads and do not mistake the scaffolding for the building. So in Freud's work, the technology of the body, analogized as camera apparatus, becomes only a starting point, the scaffolding or framing rather than the building that helps to understand psychic locality. The psychic apparatus is a technology. Even as the technology of the camera as apparatus is the initial site, the psychic life of movement is understood through it with acknowledgement of the imperfections of the analogy and perhaps that particularly European sense of the fantasy of that as it pertained to the racial other. Both camera and microscopes were, after all, mechanisms through which to perceive and record differences that were not immediately accessible. In Freud, as I've discussed extensively elsewhere, colonial life carries a spectral quality to it for the modernist he perceived, and indeed the modernist he was. I draw attention to these questions because the highly aesthetic, work of I, aesthetic works of Isaac Julian and Mona Hatoum have consistently been bound up with modernist and post-colonial concerns of Marxism and psychoanalysis, as it is through these lenses, as well as through the aesthetic of modernism more generally, that we can see ideas of being black, Palestinian, woman, desiring, and what a queer aesthetic might mean with and beyond gender and racial identification. What I mean by this, with, um, with on the one hand and beyond on the other, is that Julian's and Hatoum's works consistently study the icons and the ephemera in which we ha may have libidinal investments, embracing and enjoying them, while also casting questions about the processes of, of, processes of their constitution. In this way, the works are often studies of the fetish and, I would argue, the economic specter of that fetish. In order to demonstrate my point, let me turn now to the artworks that could in some ways be seen as most obviously and referentially autobiographical of, the, of their works to show how the sense of dwelling is not perceived in tragic or euphoric terms of loss or attachment, but rather demonstrate an attachment to technology that questions any organic notion of belonging. So the first of these is going to be Isaac Julian's work, Paradise Omeros, and I'll speak also briefly of his addition to that work called Encore, which was just, it was, a, it was a piece that was made with reference to Paradise Omeros. Symmetry and opposition folded together and drawn apart constitutes the aesthetic of Isaac Julian's Paradise Omeros, a three-screen video installation exploring space, place, and memory. The memory played out here is Creole, involving a mixing of cultures and languages characterized through the genesis, through genesis, through the histories of slavery, colonialism, and contemporary capitalism, as much as it is philosophically and digitally baroque, as Tim Murray would say, 
caught in multiple temporal and spatial frames, counterpoised and digitally folded, creating directional and perspectival tension. Autobiographical without being concerned with identity or identification, Paradise Omros explores creolite, the preserved diversities of original Caribbean asymmetrical politics and cultures. Creolite plays itself out here on three visual planes, with seams of space and time folding in on each other, unable to maintain the centralization or prioritization typical of an iconic triptych. In its movement and narrative, the installation is historical while eschewing teleology. The past is figured as layers of memory, both beautiful and stark, leisurely and threatening, dramatic and painterly, and filled with citations of earlier works of art, epic painting and performance art. The fragmented narrative that emerges in this installation is of a child growing up on the Caribbean island of St. Lucia and in London. Threaded through the memories that appear imagistically as well as in sound are thoughts of home, paternity, nostalgia, violence, colonialism, domestic abuse, racial tension, the tourist industry, and the various technologies that constitute the recent memory of artistic and colonial production, art, film, radio, gramophone, slavery, and ships. St. Lucia is known popularly as the Helen of the West Indies for both its beauty and because it switched back and forth between French and British rule some 14 times in the 17th and 18th centuries, with the British finally taking control in the early 19th century until 1979. It is perhaps fitting then that the poet Derek Walcott, who is from St. Lucia, wrote Omaros, a long poem based on Homer's work, and narrates part of the poem in Paradise Omer, in Julian's um, video installation, Paradise Omaros. St. Lucia itself is the protagonist of the poem, and she moves through different moments of her history and language. The vitality of the poem and the installation reminded the oral source of Homer's epic too, which is not so much adapted as cited as a source of song concerning travel and struggle, division, symmetry, war and the sea, and indeed home, paternity, violence, and movement. Walcott's poem begins with a contemplation of the early moment of Homer's Iliad, with a confrontation between Achille and Hector um, for the control of Helen, rather than the Homeric war booty Briseis. The classical fisherman Philoctetes also appears. It turns next to a Sergeant Major Plunkett and his wife Maud, who is Irish, recording James Joyce's Ulysses with its complex negotiation of the vicissitudes of British colonial rule. It interweaves English with St. Lucian Creole, and ultimately, in the final poem of the Dantesque Tetzarima, there is reflection on the poem on transatlantic journeys on the Atlantic. Paradise Omeros. Oh. Ah. Oh, no. Sorry, I thought it was a light. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks. That's okay. Okay. Okay, let me see. Where was I? Um, okay. Paradise Omeros. 
narrated in part by Derek Walcott, however, is not a visual interpretation of that poem, even as it is referenced and cited. This exercise in memory that travels the colonial passage resituates Achilles in less heroic form as the Caribbean child and waiter who is then resituated in London as if to complete the final journey that began with slave trade. Walcott's voice tells us, but this is the Atlantic now. The paradise island glowing with sun saturating our memories in the wine-dark sea of Homer's world filled with the sounds of cicadas, is replaced by the grey concrete of a drab, cloudy London, a Dante-esque limbo, the edge of hell with dogs barking threateningly. <clears throat> Walcott's voice, as if we were in England to pay for our sins, reading his poem whose title is taken from the ship that brought Jamaicans to London in 1948 and constituted the first major immigrant arrival, Windrush for Paradise Omeros 2002. Each space is visualized threateningly in fragments which are themselves mediated by oppositions of color and landscape and of digital planes haunted by filmic techniques, elevator doors that reference a cinematic swipe, for example, older technologies of the gramophone or radio and leisure mediated by the tourist industry. The installation moves between childhood and adulthood. As a child, Achille, played by the singer-actor Hansel Jules, appears to be the victim of some form of violence, perhaps perpetrated by a drunk father, and he runs through rain, forest, and home, and, and, and home appears to be a cabin. In London, as a youth, he plays hide-and-seek in a concrete structure with a white kid. The tension vacillates between the threat of violence and sexual possibility, between desire and fear. The operatic is interspersed with Caribbean music, which seems to be playing in an immigrant London apartment. A tracking shot filmed very clearly in 16mm and then transferred digitally surveys the decor and furniture, and the viewer becomes Achille as camera, approached by the adults and peered at by them just as Achille leans over the customer on the beach when he is a waiter. Besides the literary, musical and filmic references, we also encounter the mysterious figures on the beach who emerge as if shamans to give a message of possibility emerging in mirrored tension. In the love-hate rings rep reminiscent um, on numerous, um, of numerous cinematic criminals, which are this time made in golden flamboyant excess on the luxury beach, and the other is a floating glowing soccer ball gazed into by Kendall Hippolyte, poet, social critic, and the perform and performance artist from St. Lucia, as if it were a crystal ball. The landscape of St. Lucia with its mountains known as the Piton resting on the sea become the visual medium through which a third space of the possibility of a creole future emerges out of reflected material. One piton is reflected back on itself and into the sea below. The waves lapping against the edge of the mirror images fold binaries back in on themselves to throw open the question of what a future may be that goes beyond black and white, love and hate, xenophobe and xenophile, self and stranger, and even ebb and flow. 
The angled planes of the three screens replace mirror image to project a possible different future. <clears throat> the short piece that, that was made alongside um, Paradise Omeros, Encore, draws out the operatic qualities of Paradise Omeros, allowing Achille, the protagonist of both, to be called up again to perform his operatic arias of Walcott's Omeros. Visually, the short piece works within the same reflective techniques of Paradise Omeros, doubling images, employing montage and complex editing in an ostensibly non-narrative piece. A mirrored ginger flower transformed into a quivering larynx seems to dance to the opera, and the Piton and the Caribbean, the mountain and the sea, throw a shadow that is the concrete skyline of London housing, a London housing estate on the edge of a washed-out Thames. Derek Walcott appears as he narrates of Achille seeing the ghost of his father's face, as if to produce in encore a different kind of father-son relationship to that which appeared, uh, that, to that which appears once again in encore, a threatened, suggestive violence that sends a boy running through rainforest, his heart beating to the rhythm of the cicadas again, escaping the sound of barking dogs and domestic threat. This different, non-familial story of St. Lucian paternity, in which different creative generations look out to the landscape of the Piton that nurture them and the London that become their shadow, continues a queer aesthetic of finding a different form of futurity. Sound similarly becomes important, as in the operatic forms in Paradise, Home, Ross and Encore. Sound similarly becomes important in Julian's controversial film about Franz Fanon, the Martinican psychiatrist with a strong interest in psychoanalysis who spent much of his career fighting the cause of decolonization in Algeria and other parts of Africa. This is a documentary that once again questions the nature of the genre because in many ways it's a documentary of what is unspoken in Fanon's work, indeed sometimes even violently excluded. Even though Fanon was a psychiatrist who felt that the psychiatric problems he encountered needed political as much as medical attention, his politics sometimes put the questions of desire in a second rank. The psychoanalytical theoretical interpretations of Fanon that emerged foregrounded the question of desire, which leads Julian to focus on the early work about desire and its thwarted nature, black skin, white masks, rather than the later manifesto of decolonization, Wretched of the Earth, which was more a call to arms rather than exploration of identification and a kind of unbelonging. But the film puts desire back. It's a documentary that's partly about that. What does it mean to have desire for Fanon's work when he was something of a homophobe and a misogynist? These are questions that come up through the technologies of visuality and, very importantly, listening in the work. Julian focuses once again precisely on the acousmatic as the locus of desire. Fanon's own emphasis on the visual that he derived from the philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre and Jacques Lacan, psychoanalytic philosopher, become in Julian's hands the occasion for a questioning of the genre of documentary and its own prioritization of the visual and the expert as opposed to desire. But Julian poses the question of what it means to be returning to Fanon at the end of the century and what it means to engage with his work while 
simultaneously acknowledging its homophobia and sexism. He does this by putting pressure on what is unsaid in Fanon and what sounds are severed through an emphasis on less listening, the ear and the radio, recalling Fanon's own important work on the topic, are important acoustic objects that appear again and again, and the dramatization of the act of listening, the psychiatrist and the psychoanalytic task, as well as the use of the female operatic voice. <clears throat> Sound comes to shape a scene, it occupies another, another dimension that sets it apart from the iconic images and also apart from the Fanonian racial epidermal schema overshadowing notions of race. It emerged um, as if sound emerged from an absent spectral space, which is paradoxically the site of the indexical, that is, the site in which film or photography is marked by the material moment of its production, which casts a shadow over the idea of a more transparent technology of visuality as naturalized representation. But also listening disturbs visuality in another way, as the figure of Fanon listens to the patient with a colonial hospital guard in the background, it becomes clear that there can be no exchange of looks here because of the context of violence. Desire is therefore almost inevitably repressed as it cannot be played out without the material threat of death and aggressivity. Psychically, in a damaged arena, it is only when the figures move out of their relation to each other that desire can once again be considered when, for example, a gaze is averted. <clears throat> Mona Hatoum's work emphasize, works emphasize extraordinary fear of domestic space writ large, which suggests a foreboding sense of institutional and state control associated with objects and relations associated with the domestic, with home, with the very concepts of belonging and community, and as a result, the constitution of the human. The affective relation to belonging at work demonstrates a profound distrust of any kind of comfort with the concept of belonging, the spatial demarcations frequently associated with it, the workings of propriety that accompany it, the assumptions of reproducibility and legacy, a misguided sense of familial or contractual security. Even though Edward Said was attentive to the sense of threat embodied in Hatoum's works, and particularly those that are domestic objects, he nonetheless offers an, offered an analysis that always gestured toward the prior moment of loss as the root of doubtful comfort um, of the domestic setting, as if home will always be a lasting memory once dispossession has occurred. But the senses Hatoum works with do not seem to thematize possession and dispossession in quite such a te 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 teleological manner, and they are as much forward-looking as they are backward. Her works consistently attract and repulse simultaneously, and the spectator is both sensually drawn into involvement and repulsed by it in both senses of the word. One of the ways in which Hatoum suggests these doubts about belonging is through, again, once again, the foregrounding of technology, almost as a way of disabusing the spectator of the sensory immediacy of the visual. And another is through challenging the borders of homes, states, and bodies in her work. There is no sense of comfort offered that could make home a desirable site with no threat attached to it. Hatoum's works body forth a resistance to thinking diaspora and displacement, the inverse of community, in terms of a metaphysics of presence, of identity, of identification, 
or, or even of ontology. Rather than thinking of diaspora and community in terms of bodies emerging into different spaces, they show the technologies and institutions through which life itself is defined or inframed through the violence of metaphor. The earth, the body, the familial, and the domestic are inscribed in spite of their very insistent presence. Hatoum's art draws on the literary and visual, sonic and tactile, and works within a different relation of belonging than a metaphysical one. Presence indeed seems constantly questioned and life is revealed as technologized and formally and sensibly inframed. Technologization of life is, once, is, is, is explored once again in, in, um, in Heidegger um, in, in, a, in, in, in a relevant manner. In his lectures on the history of the concept of time, Heidegger discussed the concept of hearing through the German word hören, the root of which is to attend, notice, hear, and see. Hören now means to hear, to listen, to attend, or to obey, and is distinct from, from if related to hochen, which suggests listening in terms of harken, in other words, listening without understanding. He writes, quote, even listening is phenomenally more original than the mere sensing of tones and the perceiving of sounds. Even listening is hearing with understanding. I originally and at first one hears not noises and sound complexes, but the creaking wagon, the electric tram, the motorcycle, the column on the march, the north wind. It takes a very artificial and complicated attitude to hear such a thing as a pure noise. Heidegger goes on to discuss the compound words and related words developed out of hören, überhören, to ignore, hörig in bondage or enslaved, and most importantly for him, gehören, to belong to. Hearing involves a moment of the with, an enslavement of sorts, and belonging is togetherness. He also suggests that we hear not only others, but language itself. We do not just speak language, we speak out of it, he writes. We can do this only by having always already listened to language. What do we hear there? We hear the speaking of language, end quote. Through this, language opens up the world for us, thus belonging and togetherness are related to hearing. Language for him suffers from technology, even though it is posited by Heidegger as, quote, an original poetry in which a people politicizes being. Hatoum draws attention to language as technology, where technology is not only a technique or a skill, as in techne, and is not only a begetting or production. It emerges, as with Heidegger, as a form of knowing that guides and shapes our emergence in the world. Technology in her hands becomes not only a mode of making things, of knowing how to, but precisely a mode of revealing the process of making. A technology, then, is a stand or a frame or a rack, gestell, and in someone's hands, it is an inframing of the world's resources that stand in reserve. Anything we may consider authentic to essence or being is already inframed through the foregrounding of the process of making. And in a sense, in the process of revealing, we begin to see how there is no part of the earth that has not, con not been constituted as hearing, belonging, and inframed as the world. Adding a more Marxist reading, life becomes inframed by global capital's, te te capital's technology, 
whether one's sense of origin is diasporic, indigenous, or or autochthonous. The focus, then, is on the earth that has changed into world rather than on identity or humanity or belonging. The emphasis, then, is not on being identified or disidentified, on identity or ontology, but on epistemology and revealing the mechanization of life itself, partly through the instruments of listening. In this context, Hatoum's video, Measures of Distance, foregrounds from 1988, foregrounds the machinery of belonging and separation and the manner in which life is technologized and voice functions. Whereas voice may allow us to assume a metaphysical presence, in Hatoum's work, voice does not grant or endow with an authenticity or indeed a metaphysical presence, but rather the machinery and technology of belonging is what we come to notice, indeed what it means to communicate and exchange within the rubric of technological living. If the video is ostensibly about letters between mother and daughter, one in Beirut, one in London, It both foregrounds the singularity of that intimate relationship in every utterance, but also performs on the level both of content and technique the workings of mechanical reproduction and indeed the impossibility of full communication. And yet while the video tells the story of a relation between mother and daughter with a rather intrusive threat of the father and of borders, it also foregrounds the technology of the letter and of language. The letter has arrived from somewhere, and the technology of its vocabulary does not begin with the mother. In fact, we are asked in the video to bear wit- to hear voices before we understand a letter, to listen to language itself, and not just what it denotes as we switch from Arabic to English, highlighting language as translation as more than a transparent mechanism of communication. The letter also seems to have reached its destination with the daughter, but then it comes on to us and further. The letter is both a static object fixed in time for a short moment, and then it's also on the move again. It's both intimate and singular to the situation, and part of a larger technology of belonging. In Hatoum's video, video itself is denaturalized as a technology of movement, and as, in a sense, a technology of diaspora. Video still holds moments as if they were letters before the technology of mobility starts over. And the letters form more than a spoken narrative. Drawing on the use of calligraphy and the veil, Hatoum uses Arabic script over the the shower curtain that hides her mother's body, as if words too become the veil of modesty and function already as a concealing and restrictive fabric that nonetheless is simultaneously unconcealing and sensuous. The letters then are a fabric of desire and intimacy while simultaneously a resistance to the possibility of unmediated access to the words of another. The letter is literalized as handwriting, the veil is produced as a curtain of restricted access The listening is already inscribed into a technology of belonging and unbelonging, and identity in this scenario becomes of secondary importance to the technologies of existence. For Heidegger as much as for Hatum, the non-conceptual sound of language is where communication seems to occur, and it is in this non-conceptual and sensual level in which the human as communicator paradoxically, paradoxically comes undone. 
If technology shows how we speak out of language as much as it makes us human, it also shows the way in which hearing functions to question the limit between human and animal. It does not become the basis of a community sense, but rather it becomes insight into the very difficulty of that concept. It is through technology, then, that the artwork stands in a critical relation to the forms of exchange and communication that cannot encompass the aesthetic resistance to these forms. I'll just conclude now. Welding, writes Martin Heidegger in The Thing and in The Origin of of the Work of Art, is the production of art in the space between earth and world. I have explained elsewhere that production and work, that is the imaginative and ontological labor performed in art objects, are for Heidegger the essence of art because art objects do the work of opening up the world so that one can imagine a way of being within it. While the process of transformation from raw materials, paint, canvas, clay, into painting or sculpture are part and parcel of any consideration of art, the ontological shaping constituted through the art less frequently contributes to an understanding of the work, and yet forms of being brought into the world in art, the best example of which is poetry for Heidegger, are twofold. Quote, projective saying is poetry, the saying of world and earth, the saying of the arena of their strife, and thus of the place of all nearness and remoteness of the gods. Poetry is the saying of the unconcealedness of beings. Actual language at any given moment is the happening of this saying, in which a people's world historically arises for it, and the earth is preserved as that which remains closed. End quote. Isaac Julian's and Mona Hatoum's poetic texts, through their understanding of the spectral presence of cinema and other technologies, works to demonstrate this process of unconcealing, and in this process shows how, shows how this is precisely not about dwelling. If cinema has always been international since its inception and built itself on the colonial encounter, video shows how rooted cinema nonetheless threatened to be technologically. Indeed, poesis, one could say, following the psychoanalyst Nicholas Abraham, is a marking out of temporality, capable of expression beyond the meanings associated strictly with that denoted by images and words. Poesis often emerges in the works as a consideration of the earth and a tension between the earth as carrying a rhythm within it. The unconscious of the earth seems at odds with the desire of the world it figures, who beat out a time of desire differently, carrying the scars of economic deprivation and spectral possibility. And it is the presence of movement that seems to conjure this possibility by highlighting the exigencies upon which dwelling is founded. This trajectory of movement and travel as a site of possibility, hope, and violence highlights a a form of of being distinct from that built on dwelling or the domestic as sites of belonging. It highlights, in fact, the importance of unbelonging as the refusal of being based in dwelling. Thank you. I'm sorry that we turned the lights off on you, but we That's needed to be able to see the, to see the screen. It's fine, as long as the stand didn't disappear completely. <laughs> yeah. <it was> <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have um, 
We do have time for questions, so I will uh, just open it up. Can I ask, uh, during this part, that you wait for the microphone to arrive um, with you and also that you say your name, please, and uh, where you're speaking from. Thank you. <laughs> we have a question here. Thank you. Um, Sumi Matok, um, NSC General Institute. I was wondering if I could um, take the liberty of asking you a question from last from Monday. Yes. If that'll yes. be okay, do you yes. think? <laughs> okay, it's just a question that's been sort of, I've been trying to think about. Um, last, uh, on Monday, you, you, you'd sort of, um, sort of, um, in a way carved out a trajectory for thinking f about a move away from dignity towards disposability. And I've been trying to think about, um, you know, what the sort of, uh, you know, what kinds of intellectual clearing does that move that makes, then makes possible? Yes. And I was just wanting to perhaps ask you to speak a little more about that because I think that, that is quite a significant move. Right. I simply wanted, yeah, perhaps to, to get you to speak a little more about it because I'm still trying to think around that. Yes. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> well, the, um, the move from dignity to disposability that I'm trying to think about is that I think that there's... Um, Given um, that there are, um, that first of all, that the term dignity in most modern constitutions and also um, in um, in human rights um, documents um, frequently seems to mean a whole range of different things. Right? So that's um, so I think that there's a. a um, a problem with the term if it is um, attempting to uh, attempting to work as some kind of um, something something that that inheres in the individual when often you know that that's that's part of that's part of the understanding of dignity um, but it's only part of it in the way that it gets used in these in, in, in these documents. I mean, sometimes it is, um, sometimes it's used um, more precisely in a Kantian framework, which does um, which does um, seem to suggest that 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 there is this kind of inherent dignity that that the human um, the human a, a, a monetary value can't be ascribed um, to the human, for example. But at other times, it would seem as if um, dignity is something that is given, right? Um, and um, and it seems it seems to me that that much of the time the term dignity is then used as a way of actually not dealing with. Um, more more concrete problems um, and um, and so you know when it when it would seem as if what is actually needed is some kind of um, uh, 
for example, economic compensation of some sort. Um, the term dignity is often used to make the human uh, um, uh, a, a kind of sanctified figure without actually having to do that. Right? Now, I mean, I'm being rather vague here, but I've actually written about it in more, in, in, in more sort of precise um, terms. I mean, there, there's, you know, there's a very interesting, the, 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 um, the term dignity, as I said, is used in many modern constitutions and most famously recently in the South African constitution which uses the term dignity many, many times, and the Constitutional Court really holds, um, the South African Constitutional Court really holds it up as being extremely important. And there was a very, very interesting case um, a few years ago um, in which the, um, the court was trying to determine um, whether prostitution should be legal or illegal. Right? And... Um, and really, the question revolved in this very it revolved around a, a basically a Kantian question of of whether if you um, if you put a value an economic value on your body um, are you um, are you therefore um, uh, making of it something that does not have dignity right I mean it actually you know in many ways sort of makes that idea of dignity inhering in the human um, uh, complicated at least right um, it sort of opens up a flaw if you like around understanding dignity and sexual difference together I mean not that not I, I don't want to exactly say that prostitution becomes the test case for thinking about sexual difference but on one level it does Right um, in 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 that context, um, and so it seemed to me that that, that um, I mean you know in many ways this is meant as a provocation right to to highlight all the problems with the term dignity, but but it, it seemed to me that that actually the term um, currently that seems to have more um, relevance for an understanding of what the human is is disposability. And on, on, a, on a long spectrum, right? I was trying to think about different kinds of relations to the term disposable, whether it is in terms of disposable income or a relation to, to disposable objects um, or in terms of the disposability of populations um, who seem to be swept away by, by, um, by the machinery of capital, sometimes... Um, without even um, achieving the category of being oppressed, if you like, right? I mean, so invisible um, that, that um, which is why disposability seemed, seemed like a, a relevant category. And so in trying to sort of think about that idea of disposability, um, what, I, um, what I wanted to do is try to develop a notion of relation to, to that term in order to um, in order to show in a sense how related all these things are in terms of disposability in, in, in terms of um, a relation to life right and in trying to think about um, an asylum for the future um, in which we're both hosting guests 
the idea was is that we, um, in thinking about disposability, we would all, in a sense, need asylum in a different kind of in a different kind of future. So disposability becomes um, an analytical mechanism through which to see that uh, the future could be better. Question in the middle. Hello, it's Hakan, and I work at TLSE. Um, what I will ask is really towards you just provoked and then uh, sort of in the making, in a way, the question. Um, in 1997, in this precise auditorium, um, Gayatri Spivak was delivering a speech, and uh, it was, in a way, at the time she was revisiting whether her question, can the subaltern speak, um, is still relevant or what we can do about it. And his, her one line was, of course, subaltern can speak. And then she said, well, there's something about it, and it is the, um, the term she used was enforced historical orality. That's the mechanism through which usually subaltern can speak. Um, so I was sort of reminded of that because in some ways, um, if the artwork and artists are opening new ways of being in the world, and what is the language they speak with? Right. And the link of that speaking with the hearing will be complicated. And when we hear what they speak, do we share the same language in some ways? If we do, are they coming, are they able to break that historically enforced um, state of speaking? Thank you. Thanks. That's a, that's a, um a really great question. Um, what I'm um, okay. So first of all, let me just sort of speak to the can the subaltern speak um, um, issue. It, it seems to me that um, from the time that can the subaltern speak came out, there were a series of essays that Spivak wrote on the question of subalternity and um, uh, and um, sub, the subaltern study, the, his, the history, the historians group, the subaltern studies. And um, my favorite essay from that moment um, is, is the one called Deconstructing Historiography, um, in which Spivak talks about the importance of the subaltern as the functional change in the science system. Okay, a functional change in the science system. And um, I have, um, I suppose I've always thought that Can the Subaltern Speak um, uh, remained the essay that people turned to 
because a number of people could quite easily say, well, of course, the subaltern can speak, and isn't this a position of privilege from, from which someone's speaking if they say that, you know, so-and-so can't speak? Um, but it seems to me that, that when she was asking, can the subaltern speak, she was really saying, can there be a functional change in the sign system? And... Um, and can that functional change in the science system be one that is marked by sexual difference, which recognizes the androcentrism of, um, of political speech, right? So that's, I mean, just to, just to put that in there, because I think that actually in her revision of Can the Subaltern Speak, she responded so much to the criticisms of it that it became a slightly different essay. So I'm quite attached to the old essay. <laughs> um, I'm quite attached to the 80s in general, I find. Um, and um, um, and, um, and so if we're thinking about the functional change in the science system, it seems to me that what um, Isaac Julian and Mona Hatoum are doing, and I don't think that they are on their own in this. I see this in a number of um, artists who one could broadly call post-colonial, I suppose. Um, um, I see a, um, a way of addressing, uh, of, of working in an aesthetic that is addressing earlier forms of technology and different, and different forms of technology in order to make them speak differently, right? Um, and when I say make them speak differently, I suppose what I mean is bring about a kind of functional change in the science system. Um, and um, and that, um, that change in the science system um, also speaks to, um, if we're thinking through Spivak again, it, it speaks to a kind of um, a, a way in which she, in which she characterized um, deconstruction as a double negative. One cannot not want something, right? And it seems to me that with, with Julian, for example, with Isaac Julian, if we're thinking about the Fanon film, in a sense, that, that dynamic of cannot not wanting something is very important. One cannot not want Fanon, even as there is a necessity for, for, for Julian to make him speak differently, right? Make him speak in a way that is actually quite distinct and different um, by playing with technology, right? There's um, the, 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 a piece that he made called um, Phantom Afrique, which I've written about elsewhere, which is, um, which is a work that keeps referencing, um, which references André Gide and his relationship with Marc Allegre, as well as um, Michel Lerisse's work um, uh, at the Musée, um, Musée de l'Homme in Paris. Um, and um, in many ways, it's trying to um, address the way in which there is this kind of desire and interest and fascination with these figures. Right? Of course, there is. Uh, um, of course, they they were colonialists in a way. Right? Whatever that means. Right? 
Um, and one's desire is formed through that, right? Um, and, and, and so there's a way in which there is this kind of desire then to make them speak different, differently through a citation of their works, um, through a citation of the technologies that, that they employed. So, I mean, this, so that's really how I think what I've said here through, through Spivak. If there aren't any more questions at the moment, would you mind if I ask one? Is that, sure. is that allowed? Um, it's not really, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a little bit uh, disjointed, but one of the things I was wondering about, um, partly, partly in relation to the, to the sort of psychoanalytic questions, I suppose, is whether or not unbelonging, and I was thinking, I think especially in relation to this image, mm -hmm. has whether or not you might think of that partly in terms of of the uncanny because of the unheimlich the, mm. the, and in terms of the kind of um, yes I would just wonder whether you whether you have any thoughts of the of the relation mm -hmm. between the right. possibilities of un belonging and unhomeliness yes and right. the unhomeliness right. of right. the uncanny um, well um Yes, yes, I do. I mean, I think you know what what that gives me in a sense is a way of um, a way of also showing how unbelonging is not a negative term, right? I mean, that un is, but it's like the un of uncanny, yes. right? That 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 un isn't uncanny isn't the negative of canny, mm. right? Um, um, and um, as Freud goes to great length to explain um, in that essay, and unbelonging isn't the negative of um, of belonging. It's um, and it's not. It doesn't have um, a negative. For me, it doesn't have a negative connotation. Right? It's not a kind of sad, wretched. Oh, I don't belong anywhere. Type. <laughs> type. Um, type of um, thing um, it's um, it's it's an engagement with a way of being that doesn't have to belong mm. right um, and that is quite comfortable and at ease with not really belonging it's just not really an issue to belong and and I, I suppose you know my 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 frustration with um, with some form of identitarian work, I mean not all forms, but you know some form of identitarian work and some form of some forms of diaspora studies is that there is this kind of attachment to belonging, and with always a sense that not having anywhere to belong is a sadness rather than rather than trying to rather than being a, another way of inscribing the world if you like so yes i mean i think that 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 um that there is a kind of you know sense of disjuncture that one 
might feel with some of these works, and you know, with the three screen works, for example, in uh, in in Julian's work, you know, there is this kind of sense of disjuncture. They, you know, sometimes that it's not just that they're all they're all they all have different images. Sometimes there is one image that is projected onto all three screens, but then they're slightly off. So you can kind of see how it's one image, but also you're not allowed to, right? So there is that kind of uncanniness, um, uncanniness to it. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I, mm. I was also thinking about the, the, way that, the way that the uncanny can be thought of similarly as generative rather, mm -hmm. rather than simply negative. Mm -hmm. That also seems to be... Right. Right. Questions? I'd kind of like to channel Claire's question from the other night, so just channel Claire Hemmings into the room <laughs> for, for, for the moment, because she asked um, at the end of, of my talk where I brought up those few images from another Isaac Julian piece, the Western Union Small Boats piece, about the... Um, the um, affective um, mm. uh, um, form of, of of the visual, and um, partly, you know, and I, I think that you know, the, there's definitely, a, of course, a way of understanding the visual in terms of affect, and of course, I mean, I think you know, very much um, since um, Deleuze's work, what is philosophy, that has, in a sense, become something of, 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 of the common understanding, right? Um, but I suppose what I'm trying to do here is, um, uh, is think of, of, of these artworks as, um, as epistemological pieces, right? Um, which doesn't mean they're without affect. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, clearly they are in ways that I think most things are. Um, and of course, it depends what we mean by that term affect, which I think is notoriously difficult to, to define. But if we're thinking about it as some kind of interface between body and mind rather than just the emotions, if we are um, thinking about it as, um, as a, a way in which... Um, in, the, in a psychoanalytic sense, in which, which is a sense in which it's not really thought of generally at the moment, but if we think about it as the somatic having some kind of physical relation, right? I mean, there's you know the the, the quivering of a nerve or whatever it may be, yeah. right? Um, um, then um, then I think that 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 actually uh, um, attaching it more attaching visual culture um, uh, to the affective solely, which I do think ends up being the move in much work that's influenced by, by Deleuze. And, you know, please challenge me on this if I'm talking nonsense, which I may be. Um, uh, it, it seems to me that, that the, the attention to technology really is a call for some thinking about the episteme in relation to these works. Thanks for a very um, interesting talk. 
It's just um, thousands of years ago when the first hieroglyphics appeared on caves. I think it was in France, actually. Or probably Gaul then. But it was saying we are, we exist. This is, you know, the way we live. Probably hunter-gatherers, hunters and gatherers. But the world since then, it was the first rational thought communication. But the world since then is manifestly more complex with sciences, space travel, technology, meat studies, that there are so many ways now, abstract, figurative, impressionistic, of expressing oneself. That the metaphor through metaphors, whichever means, there is a million ways now, of, but we still, through our art, try to say what we believe in. Yes. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, it it it, it seems to me that that you know really what I was trying to do with bringing framing this as it were in Heideggerian terms is to try to think about different ways in which um, the earth is welded, and certainly you know one can sort of think about um, the hieroglyphic in that sense, right? Sort of um, seeking to take shape of the world in some way. Um, uh, and I, I suppose the um, you know it, if if um, if I'm sort of thinking about a, 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 about a um, a way of sort of saying I exist, which is really what Heidegger's getting at. I mean, he's getting at a form of existence that is made um, that is um, uh, um, made not made available, but um, revealed. Through um, through some form of poesis, some some form of poetic utterance um, of some sort, whether it's something like this or whether it is um, hieroglyphs, then certainly it is existence that comes into being. But but there's another side to it, um, I suppose, and this is partly what I was trying to get at with the question of um, of of movement um, as opposed to dwelling, it seems to me that that um, and also citation right of these earlier technologies, it seems to me that that in um, in asserting some kind of idea of um, existence what 's also going on is a demonstration of the fragility of that existence right of of um, of, of trying to think of being relationally, right, and um, opening oneself up again, you know, to um, to the threat of desiring fennel, right, to the threat of desiring the misogynist, to the threat of desiring the the homophobe. Um, um, so, I mean, I, I you know, I I think that there's a um, a notion of being that is there in Heidegger that is highly androcentric and really attached to dwelling. And what I'm trying to get at is actually that it's that notion of dwelling and rootedness and belonging and the equation of all those things that really needs to be questioned um, when we look at when we look at some of these works. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Now we've got so many 
Right, 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 right. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I miss. Yes. No, I, I misunderstood. Um, I misunderstood what you were getting at. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, yes. And I think that that this question of medium is, um, is, you know, the, what the, the, this question of the citation of technology is, of course, associated with that question of medium, um, because. Um, because I think that that when um, when in a sense the letter is is becomes something different through the use of video, its own kind of mobility is foregrounded, right? Um, or when cinema is cited in video, um, something about the static nature of viewing. Is also revealed about cinema, and you know the the um, when um, when Julian cites um, um, visually cites um, the process of his own filmmaking, for example, with a huge hefty film camera. You know what becomes obvious is is um, is the labour that has gone into um, to turning film into in digitalizing film, right, and sort of moving from the analog to the digital and what that means about stasis and movement also. So, yes, yeah. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is, um, why have you specifically chosen Heidegger? Um, because if you if you you're critiquing Heidegger's notion of bauen and dwelling, and I mean if we contextualize him in um, the National Socialist uh, movement in Germany, then I I'm not really surprised about his notion of belonging right. on one side. Um, and then on the other side, I have a question in terms of his um, etymological essentialism, yes. which is then again linked to like the whole ideological setup in which he was writing and acting as well. Um, and I was questioning myself, belonging has a different notion today, I assume, than if we go back to its etymological mm -hmm. idea. Well, I'd, I'd like to hear what you think the different the the, the, the differences are. To, I mean, I, I there are different. I mean, I think that there are differences today. But I think that you know, actually generating some, what some of those are would would be useful. So, this question of going back to Heidegger, um, it's it's a tricky one. I mean, I I suppose I think that with the question of techne and and technology, he's actually um, He's at, he really has opened up something that is quite different and distinct. Um, and in general, um, I'm not one for um, condemning the philosophy of because of the politics of the philosopher. Right? Um, I mean, you know, this is a debate that obviously has been going on for years, and um, also in relation to Paul Deman. Um, and his um, Nazi association, and one could say that the entire ethical turn in continental philosophy is, a is as a result of trying to engage 
or not engage with Heidegger and Demann, right? So, um, so you know, I, I think that, that this is... Um, so, so, I mean, if I have to, you know, I, 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 I suppose I, ha I, I feel, given the work on technology, which I think, and also giving, given the work on being, which I think has come to shape the future of continental philosophy in ways that are really fascinating, I feel like it's necessary to work with and against him. Right? I feel as if, in a sense, one can't work with Lucy Rigoret or um, Jacques Derrida, who are, I suppose, the two figures I feel have shaped my way of thinking about things in general, um, and Gayatri Spivak, indeed. I think that you can't work with those three without some kind of engagement with Heidegger, either explicitly or implicitly, right? I mean, I feel that they're in their work so much, and they're also thinking with and against him. Um, so what I would also say is that this um, attachment to dwelling goes way beyond Heidegger, but actually reading it in Heidegger reveals what the problem with the attachment to dwelling is, right? Um, so, you know, that's, that's another way that I would, I, I would respond to that. I mean, I think that, that, you know, the attachment to dwelling, as I say, I think is there in very progressive diaspora studies, right? Um, but I think that what reading dwelling through Heidegger reveals something else about it, right? That I think at least causes a questioning of the prioritization of that term and also one of belonging. Um, the etymological essentialism, I mean, this is partly what I was also trying, you know, to get at at, at the last talk, the, both the problem and the temptation to think with etymological essentialism, because in a sense, a form of, there's a form of conceptual analysis which pays attention to what a word means, right? But that puts a lot of weight on a word, right, as a stand-in for a concept. And so what, one of the things that I was trying to do the other day was to think about the word asylum and what it means to think of it as a concept and whether it is a word that in some ways does, I mean, does the work of conceptualization and also undoes the concept, sort of forces you to think, and, think with and against a form of conceptualization that is based in the in the etymological. Does that answer? Okay. We probably have time for, for one more question. If there are any more questions. If not, I would like to thank you so much and once again for giving Thanks us such, very a, much. such a fantastically rich paper and also for, for your expansive answers in the <laughs> question and answer session. And thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.